so upstairs. Yo. Um, and uh, we've already broken into it. It's another gift from a listener. Oh. Yeah. So we received through the mails a gift from listener Michelle. Oh. Do you know what this is? Um, I do not because you didn't show it to me. Mm, okay. So I'm going to hit pause and I'm going to go up and get this and I'll. Bring it back down yeah, and then yeah, I yeah, can yeah. react. Yeah. Exactamundo. Okay. okay. Here we go. Okay, I, I'm back from my sojourn upstairs to retrieve our, the latest gift. This is the magic of the pause button. <laughs> That's right, or the editing, whatever. But oh. in this case, I, I did pause it. Right. Uh, so, so I got the gift. Comes with a. Uh, it comes with this note. Oh. Which I'll read to you in a second. But okay. can you tell what this is? Uh, it's a container. It's uh, transparent, so I can see into the container. Mm-hmm. And it appears to ha- uh, have some sort of uh, sweet comestible. Now, is it transparent because you can see into it, or can you see into it because it's transparent? The latter. Okay. Let me open it up here. Nice, there we go. Nice sound there. And this isn't even fully artistry. You are genuinely <laughs> opening the container. No, all the Foley effects go in afterwards. We got people for that. Right. We but have, that's not a full. I'm trying to tell listeners, dear listener, yeah. that was not a Foley effect. That was you actually opening yeah, the container. I'm glad you mentioned it because all of our Foley people are union people. So we can't. Right. We shouldn't be doing their professional fact, job. Exactly. I, I may have to take that sound out. Oh. Because of, you know, various rules. Okay. So. Uh, if you didn't hear that opening sound, listeners, it's you know we, we we're you know we're a union shop. Okay, right. so uh, so what is what do you think this is? Uh, uh, I I now am even more convinced it is some sort of edible uh, treat. Mm, would you like one? Um, they look delicious. Okay, do you, here you want me and to, they look frosted. Should I should I throw some one? of them are frosted? Should I throw one over to you? Um, I, I'm now starting to be suspicious of your. <laughs> You're really emphasizing whether I should want to eat it as being some sort of, like, maybe it's not really Oh, my gosh. Here, treat. Just, here just take one and I'll have one. Here you go. Are you going to catch this? Or I don't not? know if I'm going to catch it. Ah! Nope. Oh, my God. oh dear Lord. <laughs> that was... No, I'm, and I'm also not going to climb out from behind this. Um, oh, there's now there's a four-legged oh boy. headed for it. Oh, is she going to get it? Yeah. she's Well, she's snipping it. Oh, boy. Oh, she's she not... Gonna, is, is it safe for her to eat? Is it? I don't know. She seems a little concerned about this is, it. This like is maybe Darcy it's we're not talking really... about. Well, no. I have to say, you know, this is if if listeners. Oh boy, there she goes. Yeah, she's really eating it. Uh, <laughs> All right, so yeah, let's listeners, try again. If listeners, if listeners could have seen, like Here's... there would be no doubt. Like I don't think listeners had any illusions before this that like we had hidden athletic prowess, and we simply chose to enter a life of academia and, yes and and and, and the sedentary pudgy and uh right pale right yeah <laughs> no that's not they were that was not a choice as much as a fact yeah i think the shriek i think the <laughs> here's the problem i was holding in my other hand i was trying to catch with one hand i was holding in my other hand a, a coffee cup and well, I didn't want to spill a the vessel, coffee on myself as an, in an effort to catch the comestible. Yeah, a vessel of oral argument coffee in one hand, and you're trying to catch an oral argument gift with the other. That's right. Well, let, let me read you this note. Okay. So this is a gift from listener Michelle. I feel that Darcy is underappreciated and has been getting the short end of the oral argument gift stick, hoping she enjoys these and that they didn't, adri- they, and that they didn't arrive by drone. So these are dog treats. So they are intended for Darcy and not for me. Well, I don't see why you couldn't eat them, though. I was now when let I you. was a kid, we we um, on more than one occasion uh, we would dare each other to eat various dog biscuit 
items oh or dog or dog kibble items. Right. And I so on a number of occasions I have had dog biscuits and dog kibbles. You went at, through with that at least as a kid, and uh, I found them to be you know they were dry and pretty flavorless. Oh boy, yeah. uh, we never had. I never was dared to eat, and nor do I think I would have eaten uh, wet dog food. No. Um, it, so it was always the dry, crunchy, you know, the little kibble or the or the little milk bone or something like that. This is definitely more information than our listeners require. <laughs> <laughs> it may be more than they require, but it's definitely every bit as much as they desire. Here's the thing. I would happily eat a milk bone now to see what it tasted like. I don't, There's no problem with that. Why, you, what's you the would? harm in that? Sure, why not? Well, A, you, you know, as you know, I'm a vegetarian. Yeah, and it, it, so it is. A, it probably does contain animal products. So that's a reason to object. If Who you're a knows vegetarian. what it contains? I am not a vegetarian, so I don't have that objection to it. But there are things you wouldn't eat, uh, undoubtedly. And the chances are that it contains some of those things because it probably contains just about everything. If there were, but if there were some, if there were some this, and this goes to the sort of the psychological minefield of being a, a pet owner. Um, if there were something that that I would felt like, oh my god, that is so disgusting. I would never eat that. Right? Mm-hmm. I, I I would not ne- not really want to turn around and feed it to my dogs. I mean, why <laughs> should they eat disgusting things? Because they seem to enjoy it. They will lick so, and eat things that you would never. That's true. Right. That and that and we can just start with their own rear ends. Right. They they do <laughs> and, that. I would not do that. And I have a proposal. How about we end there as well? <laughs> <laughs> uh, here's the thing though no 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 that's i think we've said all the things <laughs> <laughs> well so uh, uh Hilarious. Oh, i was gonna say speaking of listener michelle and we'll get to that in a second um one thing because we have to go yeah, we do uh, to, to, because this is we're actually pre-taping this we gotta we, we gotta get our, our yeah, guest on, 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 on the line but oral argument podcast at gmail.com that is our email address. We're also Oral Argument on Twitter, Oral Argument on Facebook. I promised last time that if we exceeded the 100-like threshold on Facebook that it promised me cool stuff for, I would say what happened. Uh, I'll say more about that next week, but let me just – I don't want to you know, tease the listeners, so I will keep my promise. Here's what happened. Uh, as far as I can tell, nothing. Mm. Mm. But I will share more detail about what it looks like uh, I feel next like, time. I feel like Facebook might be experimenting with us. I'm not sure. <laughs> they might have been. They might have been. Uh, uh, but um, like us there and, 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 and uh, follow us on Twitter and send us feedback because next week I think is our feedback show. It is. Is that right? So we're going to do a good bit of feedback and we'll hit some themes next time. Absolutely. Feedback Palooza next week. Yeah. So if you want to get on that show, this is uh, – now. now's your chance. Uh, we – Occasionally, we'll announce things over Twitter or Facebook that happened during the week, which is relevant. And I, we did this with our serial show from way back when, at the beginning right. of the year, um, where we said, "Hey, if you want to let hit us up, if you want us to call you for yeah. our call out show for right. serial, which was really cool, we do stuff like that over there." So, uh, not not a bad place to to keep abreast of of oral argument comings and goings. Yeah, would you I say? Really, I really want to taste those now. Oh my god! All right, so we're going to get um, our guest on the line. And speaking of listener Michelle, by the way, yeah. All right, let's 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 get our guest on the line. So, as I said, speaking of listener Michelle. Hi Michelle, welcome <laughs> to the show. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for having me. You you are a long-time and loyal oral argument listener. I am a um, fan girl. First, well, I wasn't going to go that far with it, but, <laughs> but if you insist. Interesting you, to hear, yeah. If you insist, uh and first time first time hot seater, first time Colloquium presenter on America's Faculty Colloquium. That's right. 
Oi. <laughs> you object to this, Joe? I do not like that that descriptor for our wonderful podcast. We are but... we are the 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 Dallas Cowboys of academic <laughs> podcasts. The um um I can't think of another thing that America has that represents all of America. Mm. I'm not saying the Cowboys do. I don't follow that stuff. So no, I was going to say, except for all of the people in America who don't do sports, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. like, like me. <laughs> right. And, and, and us. I, I just um, know they're called America's team. And when I was a kid, oh. like when I, before I stopped following uh, right. American football, this is when I was like 13. I, have I said this on the show before? I don't think Michelle's so. Michelle's a fangirl. So you, Michelle, you just stop uh, us. Stop me if I've said this before. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, I, the Dallas Cowboys, that was my team. And wow. you know why? Well, no. their, their quarterback was Roger Staubach. Starbuck, which sounded a lot like Starbuck. Starback. Star, well, whatever. <laughs> you tell the story right. We, and this was when, wasn't there coach Tom Landry at of that course. point? Yeah, 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 Tom Landry with the hat. <clears throat> and um, I'm amazed that I know that. I have no idea but how I know But sounded like Starbuck, which was, you know, Battlestar Galactica the stuff. The original Battlestar yeah, Galactica, and, right, and which they had was that cool. Big, they had the big star on their helmets and everything. As uh, the role immortalized by Dirk Benedict, who later of the A-team. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, we really, I think we've very quickly gone down into the. I'm just saying they were the Star. Woo! They were the Star Wars team. That's all. They were the Star Wars team. So if okay. you were into Star Wars, you followed the you followed the Dallas Cowboys, and it and it helps that they are widely known as America's team. How are they the Star Wars team when nothing you mentioned related to Star Wars? They have a star in their helmet. Okay, and they had a guy named Starbuck, who was from Battlestar Galactica. Same thing. It's all oh, space. And, it's all space and guns. Oh, my. For a 12-year-old, like, this is all continuous. This is all part of Fair enough. excellence, you know, from my this... 10, 11-year-old perspective. And Michelle can verify that this is exactly what the listeners tune in for. <laughs> Absolutely. Because she, no, she is I, a I listener. Have to, I have to say, I mean, I thought that it was totally verboten to kind of conflate Star Wars and Battlestar Galactica. And, it is. And Star Trek, like, isn't that a big no-no in, in geekdom? It, 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 is, it is a no-no to make, to, like, mistake one for the other. Mm. I think what what was, you know, and I, you know, believe me, I understood all of these differences quite well as a 10 year old um, and, and I and still do to some extent. Um, but what is not a mistake is to think that they are all awesome and uh, part and part of the same genre of excellence true. in all things. Right. And and worse than mistaking any of them one for the other is to not have seen them all at oh. least once frankly many times you need to see them many times <laughs> yeah we're, i'm i'm afraid ever to ask our guests if they have failed to see star wars right cuz cuz some of them are going to say they did yeah does that extend to the prequels or whatever we're calling them episodes no. 1 to 3 cuz i mean come on no, now are those those are those uh those are the fan made ones that they had in the 90s no no those no, are no, the, no, yeah. no 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 the, those are the recent ones no, no, no. I yeah, I don't. There haven't been any since the uh, early '80s. He so. does not acknowledge their existence. Oh, oh, oh Michelle, I see. So, I, see. Yeah. I see what we're doing. The, yeah. the, got, got you. Got you. That was that was. You played that so straight. I was confused. <laughs> yes, I am totally with you on that. I was yeah. just shaking my head. Yeah, uh, leaving the theater with with those. Yeah. Well, are, are, so last bit on this, and then let's get to more important matters. Um, mm -hmm. Are you are you looking forward to the new one? Do you think it's going to be good? Me? Yeah, yeah. I yeah, I, I don't need to uh, talk I don't need to talk to Joe. I'm just talking <laughs> it's just it's just you and me right now, Michelle. Um, you know, I, I don't I don't expend a lot of energy like like anticipating that because I have a husband and I have a son, so there's a one hundred percent chance that I'm going to be dragged to see it. So there's kind of <laughs> 
not a lot of wiggle room for that. So, yeah. you know, and in general, I find that my movie viewing experience is more enjoyable when I set my expectations lower. So oh. there's really no upside to me to, to getting to sort of excited about it. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I can't say that the last three recent ones have, you know, uh, made me optimistic. No, but I, we'll I, see. I I agree with that, and I think I, I admire your approach. Um, I found it somewhat hard not to get excited after that first trailer, though. See, I have not seen the trailers. That's, I just haven't. Yeah. You're awesome. I mean, I, I if great. I were you, I would stick with that because th- they can only raise your expectations. And and I have a memory of seeing the first poster for the Phantom Menace, and, which was and thinking it could be great. Oh yeah, this is the one where where the shadow of Anakin is cast against right. the, uh, yeah. uh, the the Tatooine, um, uh, you know, um, uh, semicircle building. What do they call those things? They're you know what you know those little buildings in Tatooine they had. And the shadow is caught is cast against it, and the shadow is like Darth Vader's helmet on Ooh. it. And you're like, he's nailed it. Right. Like, you're like they've nailed it. This is exactly I've wanted this for years and That's years right. and years. And then, you know, it turns out it wasn't an official Lucasfilm production. So mm. you know. So uh, I would say, Michelle, that if someone happens to be, you know, it could be your husband, could be your son. <laughs> if someone happens to be watching um, the preview on a, a computer in your house. And if they are really fans, you, this will happen many more times between now and when the movie comes out. Uh, if they happen to be watching a preview and you happen to be near them, I don't think you need to run or flee. <laughs> I think you could just let yourself enjoy it uh, because I think it will seem kind of fun. Um, and that's okay. Now, yesterday on Instagram, they had a little video clip. It's not really a preview. I mean, it's just, it's so short but and so tantalizing uh, because it shows. <laughs> two different uh, lightsabers going into action mm. and the lightsaber sound has really been you know amped up and yeah. especially with the red lightsaber uh, wielded by a, a seemingly evil person um it kind of crackles and rages and you hear this lightsaber and you're like <laughs> it's amazing it was like for a half a second well so we, we will close up the the star wars segment of the podcast um, which we'll have re- <laughs> every week from now. <laughs> uh, just by an observation that all of Oral Argument um, podcastum will be invited to uh, the marathon of the Star Wars trilogy in advance of the uh, theatrical release. We'll cool. be showing that here at headquarters. I love it. Uh, so, so that's something to look forward to, something to put on your calendars. Um, I'm sure I'll get back with more details at some point in the future. Awesome. Okay. Um, so as I said, speaking of listener Michelle, we've got Michelle Meyer. We've gotten feedback. It's important to say people's names. Oh, mm. come on. Yeah. See, now I'm, I feel deprived of the complete <laughs> oral argument experience if Joe doesn't mangle my last oh, name. Oh, I, wait. I, 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 <laughs> upstairs. But, you know, first of all, Michelle, you know, you, sh- you shot, you scored. Okay. Second of all, <laughs> second of all, we were upstairs and I said to Christian, should I ask her? Because, you know, it could be Meyer, but it could be Mayer. No, I said Michelle Meyer, and you said, are you sure it's not Mayer? And I could ask her because it could be Mayer, and he scoffed. <laughs> it's Meyer. No, I didn't say it like that. I you think did. I, no, I, did, I, would, I would never say anything like that. You I, said Meyer. I probably said, as soon as you said Mayer, I said probably said Meyer, and then I said it, did an oh boy. Right. <laughs> right, because it's so ridiculous that M-E-Y-E-R okay. would be Mayer. Yeah, you, you it, all right. 
So You'd conf- be surprised. Confession, <laughs> you, you, you lack my ability to throatily deride something, um, <laughs> a, as I just did lustily mire. Right. Um, but uh, I did mention this. So yeah. we, we had the conversation. So now you have not been deprived. And I will hereafter refer to you as Michelle uh, Moyer. <laughs> or you can just add an S, which is what most people do. Myers, yeah. Myers yeah. or Mayers yeah. or Moyers. Or you can call me Melissa instead of Michelle. That's, Melissa that's Moyers cool. this year. There you go. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, Michelle, you're, you're, you're in a center for bioethics in, at Mount Sinai? Uh, ish. So I teach in a, <laughs> I teach in a, um, a master's level bioethics program that is a sort of joint venture between what, what are we calling now? The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, take a breath, mm-hmm. and the Union Graduate College, um, which is an upstate. Mount Sinai is, of course, Manhattan. Um, so it's a, it's a, a joint. They're our medical partner. And, and did you, is your background, so I did not look at your CV. I, I know you through Twitter and through your correspondence and stuff and through your, your blog posts on the faculty lounge. You do have a background in law though, right? Yeah. 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 It, I I have a whole degree and everything. <laughs> yeah, I got. Yeah, no, I, I did a PhD first uh, okay. in religious in religious studies uh, with basically applied ethics with a strong focus in bioethics, and then I, I did law school. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and so now you're you're teaching in a and kind of publishing in in law and teaching in kind of a law related field, but not in a law school, which is a very to me interesting kind of academic and pedagogical trajectory. Yeah. So, I mean, I teach, among other things, in our bioethics master's program, I teach the law and bioethics course, which is a required course for for everyone. And then I direct the policy track. Uh, You can do sort of a clinical ethics track, a research ethics track, or a bioethics policy track. So I sort of developed and and direct that. Uh, And then I also occasionally teach a law and bioethics seminar at Albany Law School, which is our local area uh, law school. So i little bit of foot in various different worlds. Well, I'm going to ask you about uh, today's topic, but um, before we do, um, and before we got on the air, we, you know, we did, we, we taped a little bit already and um, there was a listener, Michelle sent a special gift to us to oral argument headquarters, which we enjoy getting. Let me, let me open this again. Now this is not a Foley effect. As I mentioned in the pre-roll for the show that we're a union shop and, and all that's done by the union, but here's, there we go. So we, I've opened this up. Uh, you know, you know, Michelle, I almost got Joe to eat one of these because <laughs> they looked at, did you see what they look like? Yeah, they look, you know, I almost got a different one that, that looked just like giant Reese's peanut butter cups. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, I mean, those look really look good. The, the packaging wasn't as nice. So I don't know. I, I made a, I made a tough, tough this, executive decision. This and one I went has with, a nice, it's a nice S shape. And there was a, what's the, um, well, it's, it's like, like comes Stella, out of one of those bakers things, you like know, a Stella Doro kind of, uh, Type of cookie. I don't know what that is. I think it's called Stelladoro. Okay. Can you toss me one of those or hand me? I do. I do want to taste it. You, no, I'm not going to let you do that. <laughs> Why not? Because I want to see. That's do, gross, and this is a family. It's podcast. not gross. What are the it's ingredients? Not gross. It's 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 same ingredients that humans would eat. I think it's just like probably a little bit less sweet. These are high quality. Oh my god! Do you want one with the frosting on it? Uh, no, I want the I want the pure cookie experience. Oh, by the way, have you told listeners what it is that we're talking about? Yeah, we did. In the, oh, okay. in, so, well, we didn't. I don't know that we ever directly said it. But so Michelle and, and let me just spill the beans here. The Michelle we're talking to now, Michelle Meyer, uh, sent sent a special gift. And we read your note about uh, how Darcy was feeling. I think underappreciated. people figured that out, that they were the same Michelle. 
Yeah, I think so. This yeah. was not a big tease, you think? So huh? were these, I just want to ask go, before Doss. I taste it, I want to ask, are these, are these labeled as chicken flavored? No, there's no label other than oh. a gift from Michelle Meyer. So Michelle, were these, were these uh, indicated to you to be chicken flavored? Ew, no. Because they have I, a, well, don't say ooh, I mean, chicken is well, lovely. I'm a, well, I'm a vegetarian, so. Oh, okay, I'm not. Um, yeah, the, sh- um, the show is now no, two-thirds vegetarian. <laughs> oh, right. Uh, no, they were they were advertised as peanut butter oriented, oh, like okay. carob and peanut butter. All right, because they they have a this one for some reason has a um, almost like a a, a chicken nugget uh, smell to it. But I'm oh gonna I'm gosh. gonna taste it now. Oh my god! Please let's can we just get on with the show. <laughs> it's not particularly crunchy. As listeners know, I usually have a very high nonsense threshold. Yeah. We are now like 25 minutes. I'm gonna, let's be clear. I'm gonna cut all this. Oh my god! You better not. <laughs> I'm gonna cut all this. So <laughs> I think it's. I think. I oh think it god. is. This um, is. If you serve this at a cocktail <laughs> party, is... I think people would find it curious because oh it's a god. little chewy rather than crunchy, and it looks like it's going to be crunchy. I but, feel like I say this every few weeks, but, but it tastes but this fine. Is truly a low point for the show. <laughs> <laughs> I think Michelle's the perfect guest for this. A longtime listener <laughs> who must, by definition, also has a high nonsense threshold. Now, I want to um, point out that oh I, if I were later to object on the ground that it was unfair, um, you would say, look, Miller, you walked in with your eyes open. You knew what you were getting. I didn't try to get you to eat this without your knowledge oh that God. that's what you were eating. I wouldn't use your last name. Um, and so, hey. No last names. Maybe that's a segue. Uh, yeah, well, exactly. No, I was thinking the same thing. I mean, there have been these experiments slash punks where people have been served, you know, basically cat food, like wet cat food or whatever, oh. you know, in some fancy cafe and and to see whether, you know, the surrounding shishiness of it makes people think that this is some sort of delicacy and, you know. Yeah, well, my favorite, Overall, yes. of, my favorite of these A-B tests is is with wines. And y- mm. y- I think, did I mention this on the show blind, another time? Like blind tasting? Blind taste testing and like, you know, most people, you know, e- even like uh, sommelier types can't tell the difference between good, so-called good and bad vintages of the same wine. And the, like regular people, we've talked about this before and, and everyone's always incredulous and trying to find the research again is hard. I mean, he's seen it once, who knows? But, uh, but if you color the wine the same and you have it at the same temperature, can't tell the difference between red and white. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Many people. Um, but so one thing is there are going to be two versions of this show going out. I'm going to cut this part. <laughs> and, and, one, and one part, I'm going to say a lot of things to try to make Joe feel bad. Okay. And thereby the listener, because I think, Joe, Joe, you are uh, you are the foil for the listeners of this show in a way, mm. because people identify with you because, you know, you're smarter and funnier and all these other things. Mm. Uh, and so uh, I'm going to needle you and thereby needle the listeners in mm. one of them. And the other one, I'm going to say things to build up your ego and make you feel better. And we're going to see how many people stop listening to the show. Does this mean they experience catharsis when I leap across the room and throttle you by the <laughs> neck? <laughs> that will be the that will be the climax. You'll know it's the last episode when it ends just in gurgling. OK, cool. <laughs> um, OK, so let's get on with the. Uh, I, I figure, why not? We're 28 minutes in. Let's let's get on with the substance of the show. Uh, so, so um, you tell me. So, Michelle, you tell me what's wrong with this description of what happened here, right? Facebook, um, little known in- purveyor of internet wares, uh, decided to uh, um, to decided intentionally to try to make its uh, uh, users sad in order to conduct um, human subject research on them. 
And they found out that there was a small effect from intentionally trying to make its users sad. And uh, who knows what they're doing to that? Probably trying to figure out how to, you know, uh, make us click on Facebook more. Now, that's exactly what happened, right? Uh, well, I probably have a few amendments to okay. that, to that right. description. The the small effect size is, is right. Um, no, so, you know, I mean, what they did was intentional. It wasn't, they didn't trip over, you know, their <laughs> algorithm button. Um, so they, they intentionally ran a randomized controlled experiment, but I don't think it's quite fair to say that they intentionally tried to make users sad. Whoa. Yes. Yeah. Darcy. Darcy, dis- Darcy disagrees. Wow. And and you were just saying she's in your tur- notes. She's turning on me. I just gave you cookies, chicken nuggets, or something. I mean, you know. <laughs> who knows? Um, you know what they did was slightly tweak the dose and randomize and control the data in a way that allowed them to determine the effects of an exposure that all you know, 1.4 billion Facebook users are already exposed to every day, which is negative words and positive words that your friends put out there in their, in their posts. Um, and, and there were conflicting lines of academic research suggesting what the effects of um, positive and negative posts might be. Uh, and so this was a way of sorting the wheat from the chaff and, you know, in a controlled and a rigorous scientific way and, and trying to figure out which, if any, types of posts were posing, um, you know, a psychological risk of some sort to users. Can, can I stop you there and just clarify? I think most, I think almost everybody knows this now, at least who listens to this show. Um, but maybe a lot of people who are casual Facebooker, Facebookers don't know this. Um, but but you might object to what you just say. What do you, what do you mean manipulate positive and negative words? I mean, because if my friends post it, I see it, right? I mean, when I log into Facebook, I see all the things my friends have posted. So what 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 right. room is there for Facebook to? Yes, I mean, right. uh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Exactly. So the whole experiment has to be understood against the backdrop of what they're doing already, sort of every day. And you know, basically, when Facebook started. Um, the initial thing was everyone had their own page. And if you wanted to see what was going on with a friend, you had to sort of toggle on over to their their Facebook page. Um, that quickly became tedious. And it's, you know, it's, uh, let's just be honest, it's a little stalkerish. And and so Facebook said, like, let's have this thing called Newsfeed, where we bring your friends' posts to you. Um, and so now, as anyone who is on Facebook knows, Newsfeed basically is Facebook. It's your homepage. So you can still click to, you know, click on someone's Facebook page and see all of their activity. But basically what most people do is just go to their home Facebook page, which is um, a list of approximately 300 um, news items that they're eligible to see. Now, those 300 items are chosen by an algorithm, a very complicated, constantly uh, evolving algorithm from roughly 1,500 posts that the average Facebook user is eligible to see. Um, and, and the reason why, I mean, so some people say, just show me everything. I want to see, I'm, if I'm friends with somebody, it means I want to see what they're doing. Well, no, you don't. Not really. Um, oh, yes, you know, I do. Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> we'll talk I mean, about this, you, but go ahead. You know, if you have like 10 Facebook friends, maybe, but. Yes, look, that's me. <laughs> there, there's like 1.4 billion users. They've got to they've have something that works for most people. The average person 
every time you sit down, every time you log on or you refresh your page, you're eligible to see 1500 posts. There is, you know, approximately zero chance that you're going to actually sit there and wade through 1500 posts. Yeah, can I so, ask you about this though? Let me just, uh, cause I, I think, you know, you know, a lot more about Facebook, uh, and, and these percentages than I do. And so I, I'd like some clarification on it. Cause you know, I, I like you, I also use Twitter and what I love about Twitter is that I, that I can, although I sometimes catch up and skip over things, I can see everything that the people I follow post in reverse chronological order. Right. And uh, I follow, I don't know, I might, I might follow more people than I have friends on Facebook. Um, I'm not sure. I don't know what the rate of posting is. So when you say 1,500 eligible posts when you log in, that is less meaningful to me than for the typical user, what is the rate of appearance of new posts? And so, yeah, if you say, well, no one's going to look through 1,500 in a session, if in fact what you're eligible to see are all the posts in the last week, but you log into Facebook, say, twice a day, it seems to me eminently reasonable that you could kind of catch up on everything, uh, it, it, you know, depending on what that rate is. Now, if you have like 800 friends, then maybe that rate is much higher. Um, but there's really, uh, there really is no option anymore. Um, you can say most recent, but I think even the most recent doesn't show you uh, everything anymore. So there's really no option but this kind of algorithmic thing, right? But so do I have the numbers right or the, what's, what's the significance of the 1500? Um, I mean, I think that's fair. I'm not sure I have really any more information to offer. Um, I think, you know, I think you're probably right. If, if you're logging in every hour, it's unlikely that, that there are 1500 new posts, um, that you've, you know, that you've seen. This is sort of an average across, across users, um, they have introduced some additional ways that you can tweak the algorithm and sort of opt out of pieces of it. Um, I, for example, you can choose certain users to, um, I don't know what it's called. It's like, you know, show me, show me, put it right at the top of my feed all the time. So like my husband would get very annoyed with me that I would not like his Facebook posts and, <laughs> and I, and I'd say like, I don't see them. Um, and so, you know, I went in and changed my options for the sake of my marriage, uh, to, to say like, you know, show me his, always show me everything he does on Facebook. Can you do that? So I, I've tried yes. to outsmart Facebook many times. I, for instance, uh, when it asked what my relation was with Meredith Turner, my wife, I said, she's my grandmother. Uh, <laughs> you did and, not. Yes, I did. <laughs> at, some, I, at some point it changed over. I think she identified me as her spouse and Facebook figured out it was unlikely that both of those things were, were true. I don't know. what. I'm not sure exactly how it happened, but I think it now says that she's my spouse. But the other thing I've done is to try to mark, you know, back when they had the, like the close friends. Right. That you could mark. I just went through and marked everybody as close friends. Right. Like, I don't want it to have that. You know, I want to see. Uh, I want to see everything, and uh, so are there more options now? Are there specific hey, things I, I can do? I, I'm call, I'm throwing a yellow flag on oh, you boy. because we're we're get, we're, this is a rat hole. We, well, we, no, take no, it as given. <laughs> stop. <laughs> take it as given that the backdrop for Facebook's experiment is not a completely unmediated raw feed where everyone always sees everything all their friends post that's not right. what people were getting so right. when facebook decided to modify its algorithm that meant there was an existing algorithm already in place so the choice wasn't algorithm or not it was this algorithm that's new today or the one we were using yesterday and i think that's good context for the experiment to understand the experiment 
So now, having eaten dog biscuits on air, you want to move on quickly. <laughs> Look at it. Okay. Oh, if listeners could see, if, if if you could only like articulate that look. But I think Joe was correct. I I'm going to say that you're correct. We should, you know, yeah, we should no, move on. I mean, yeah. the, so I mean, one of the points that I've tried to stress in in you know my work on this particular um, experiment is that you know whatever criticisms you might have of Facebook's underlying practices, and that could be. The whole idea that newsfeed is is you know algorithmically curated, like you might just say, no, I really do want to see every single thing in chronological or reverse chronological order or whatever. Um, you might also have a number of criticisms of Facebook's current or past privacy practices, right? Um, there might be any number of objections to their practices, but in research ethics, it's pretty standard to isolate the risks or harms or costs of an experiment. And look at just as what is incremental, you know, just the marginal extra cost of any right. um, from an experiment rather than kind of bootstrapping uh, criticisms of an underlying practice in the guise of criticizing an experiment. So, you know, I mean, my quick and dirty take is, look, this is a product, you know, they're a company, they have, there are a lot of ways in which Facebook's interests and user interests are not aligned, but there are some in which they are pretty roughly aligned. And I think, you know, average user enjoyment is one of those where there, there is a rough dovetailing of interests. Uh, Facebook did some testing of this option that you're talking about, of just a pure chronology. And it found you know, in, in sort of the only way, I mean, I guess it could have done focus groups and like surveyed people and asked people, but instead it used data as it's want to do. And it found that the engagement metrics dropped. So people read fewer posts, they commented on fewer posts, they liked fewer posts, et cetera, which is not a perfect uh, proxy for, you know, a, an enjoyable user experiment uh, experience, but I think it's not a bad one. And, you know, and I sort of think they have the right to say, we're trying to make the product you know, as, as enjoyable as possible. And, and yes, we're trying to get you to spend as much time on Facebook as possible because, it, you know, without that, we don't have advertisers. Without that, we don't exist. You don't, nobody has a platform. So, you know, but I'm, I'm open to the idea that like, look, they shouldn't be algorithmically curating this at all. But I sort of agree with Joe. I mean, for purposes of analyzing the experiment, it's sort of beside the point. That's, that's a separate, from my view, that's sort of a separate argument. Yeah, I want, I want to get back to that connection maybe a little bit later. I want you to keep going with this story, but uh, but one quick bit of context. Is there evidence about what consumers expect? Like, do most people know that it's algorithmic? Does almost everyone know? Is there any evidence about that out there? There, There is, and it's, it's not good. I mean, no, I mean, I'm not sure if there has been uh, empirical work done since the mood contagion uh, La Faire mood contagion. Uh, you know, one. I mean, one assumes that that public uh, knowledge about Facebook is is somewhat improved, but I don't know. But around the time, or shortly before, there was some work. I think the Berkman Center, um, someone at the Berkman Center presented it, and it it was it was a, a you know a group of I think graduate students, and there was a surprising lack of awareness that it was curated. I think, you know, like, don't quote me on this, but I think, I think it was something like, um, don't think it's curated or I'm not sure about it. And sort of like the majority of people, you know, who with some sort of graduate degree who are Facebook users thought that. So clearly there was a big gap in expectations between um, your average Facebook user 
and maybe even your not so average Facebook user on the one hand and the folks at Facebook and other people uh, in Silicon Valley and other people who are data scientists on the other hand. And I think they were, I think people at Facebook and, you know, in, in similar settings were genuinely surprised um, that, that, you know, they were surprised that we were surprised. <laughs> it was one of that kind of, you know, they're, they're sort of a victim of, of living in their own kind of world. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think this is super important. And again, I want to get back to that in the context of what Facebook is and means today, like vis-a-vis like, or, or um, compared to like television of yesteryear. And I think these are really important and bear on what you have to say. But, but for now, why don't you just tell us like what the experiment actually was and then what the objections were? Sure. Okay. So before the Facebook did its own experiment, there were these two lines of academic work. Um, most of them were not experiments. A lot of them were, were sort of uh, survey-based, self-reported um, studies. And, you know, some, uh, roughly speaking, one line of analysis uh, said that there's this thing called social comparison, um, which is a pretty unflattering hypothesis about humanity. Um, but I think you will probably find some strains of truth in it in, in your own experience or intuition. And it basically says that you know, when we look at other people's positive life events on Facebook and whether they're contrived or not, right? So it may be that that people are very contrived in what they choose to share on Facebook. You know, there's these humble brags and they only report good news and they don't tend to report the bad news. But whether that's contrived or, or you know, a fair, unbiased assessment, um, this line of analysis found that people reacted negatively to their friends' good news. This is why. This is right. <laughs> right. This is why it's not really flattering, right? Um, and but, but well known also outside of the context of Facebook, you know, that people are sure. can be made less happy when a friend gets a promotion, or you know, yes, because yeah. it makes you think about how your own life isn't as good, maybe, and therefore it makes you sad, maybe. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. And even if you're aware of it, maybe it's hard to control. Yeah. Well, and, and there's also, I mean, there's, there's, you know, deep philosophical conversations and sort of justice theory about, you know, the extent to which equality is is important or not you know depending on whether people's happiness depends on their relationship to other people as opposed to sort of absolute levels of welfare so yeah this isn't like a radically new idea so yeah. one strand of of thought said you know every time your friend posts something happy that you know puts you at risk of jealousy resentment depression loneliness whatever then there was this other line of analysis in, in social science that's, um, that is called mood contagion or emotional contagion. And the idea there is that um, it, it has its genesis in physical spaces and physical social networks, so face-to-face networks. And the idea is that something about us leads us to um, mimic the physical facial expressions, vocalizations, posture, et cetera, of people around us. So if we're around a bunch of sullen people, we will tend to become sullen ourselves and our emotional affect will converge. And conversely, if you're around a bunch of upbeat people, the same thing will happen. So to the extent, and that's been begun to look be looked at in on online social networks, and to the extent that that uh, uh, extends beyond a face-to-face interaction to an online interaction, the worry about Facebook is that, you know, it's people who might say negative things. I mean, I think we all have some of those quote, quote unquote, 
friends, i.e. Facebook friends, who may or may not be actual friends, um, you know, who are kind of always complaining. They're always bemoaning something. Um, and, and the worry there. Oh, yeah. Is I know that, exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I, so, so the, <laughs> Yeah. The worry there is that that's contagious, is that that negative um, affect is contagious and that would be bad. And so you would be at risk for negative posts. And and then, of course, and in a more extreme sense with suicides, too. Right. Don't they? um, There's some evidence about uh, suicides and contagion in teens um, in places. Oh, which. Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, not not. Facebook, right? No, 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 not not, not right. Facebook. Although you know that would be you know a further question is you know the role of Facebook in these things. But or any social network that spreads news about a negative event might uh, might it engender similar negative events. Yeah, my my only point in interjecting was that there you know with this kind of contagion uh, theory, the consequences can be quite severe. Yeah. I mean, the, kind, the kinds of things you might worry about might be severe as suicide or as potentially right. you know. Uh, not lighthearted, but not nearly as severe as just feeling like you're having a bad day. So if day. you own a social network like Facebook, we can now see, having heard these two different predictions about how different content will affect users, we could see very much why they would want to know which one was true in the context of Facebook, because they want people to stay longer, not run away. So if they're, if they, given that they know they're going to be using an algorithm to decide what to serve up, because they aren't going to serve everything up, then... Well, should, if we want to induce more people to stay longer, which should we serve them? Stuff that's happier? Uh, no, that'll make them sad. Stuff that's sadder? Uh, no, that'll make them sad. Uh, we've got opposing predictions here. Exactly. Um, you know, to be fair and to round out the picture a little bit more, there were, of course, additional academic studies that suggested, well, it's really more nuanced than just A or B. Um, you know, you're experience on Facebook depends on additional variables like how you use Facebook. There's some some evidence suggesting that if you are an active engager, uh, if you're commenting, if you're liking, then you ha- you tend to have, you know, good outcomes um, correlated with Facebook use as opposed to if you're just sort of passively observing. And then there's also some work suggesting it depends on what sort of personality type you have. Um, you're going to interact, you know, you're going to have a different experience, which also makes some sense. But the point is there were two lines of thought. They were diametrically opposed. Um, and Facebook clearly has, uh, <clears throat> you know, a, a business interest in just the way that, that Joe articulates. Obviously, you know, they want a product that isn't going to make their users unhappy and run away. I mean, that kind of seems like business 101. Um, you know, and so obviously they have a sort of self-interested um, perspective there. But on the other hand, to the extent that that there is a possibility, there was, you know, probative but not definitive evidence of some psychological harm, um, probably mild at the individual level, but in the aggregate, you know, who knows? To that extent, um, it, it, you know, users and, and, you know, also have an interest in sorting this out and figuring out, you know, what what actually is going on here. Uh, And so they ran an experiment for one week at the beginning of 2012. Um, you know, and it's important to note, I mean, th- some of the limitations of these other academic studies are that they are necessarily, in most cases, observational. Why? Because academics don't have access to the algorithm, right? You can't control that in, in any sort of systematic, wide-scale way, the way Facebook can. Um, so Facebook teamed up with a couple of, of academics at Cornell who have, who are sort of experts in um, 
social communication. And they took about 700,000 users, uh, randomly selected them. You were eligible for the study if you viewed Facebook in English. And um, about half of those were control subjects. But for about 155,000 people, they tweaked the dose of the positive or negative posts you saw. So how did they how did they figure out what whether a post is positive or negative? Well, they didn't go and read your posts and say, oh, we're not going to show her that, you know, Uncle Dan is having, you know, psoriasis problems again. Um, they didn't read the posts, right? They used the sort of um, software, you know, linguistic analysis software that just trolls through text automatically and codes it. <clears throat> the way they code it is there's a lexicon built into the software of happy words and, and sad words. And if your post contains one, it gets coded as positive or, or negative. Um, and so then, then what they did was they, you know, they tweaked the dose by removing um, a certain amount of either positive posts or negative posts. It was, a, it was a range. It was either 10% of, of the posts you were eligible to see or 90% or somewhere between 10 to 90. Again, it was sort of randomized by your user ID. Um, so they did that for about a week. And the measure of the effect was the number, the primary measure was what you yourself did in the subsequent period of time, I think uh, the next week. Specifically, how many positive or negative words did you use? So on average, um, for people who had, uh, on average, people who were in these, these treatment conditions, so there were about 155 people who had reduced positive posts, 155,000 who had reduced negative posts, um, an equal number of people in both, uh, of both who had a randomly um, selected amount of posts reduced uh, without you know, just totally by random without, uh, without uh, respect to any sort of emotional content. And for people in the treatment conditions compared to people in the controlled conditions, you were likely to produce about one fewer emotional word per 1,000 words that you wrote. So if you were in the condition that filtered out some of the positive posts that you were eligible to see, in the next week, if you wrote 1,000 words on Facebook yourself, you were likely to write one fewer positive word yourself. And same thing for negative. And so they interpret this as evidence for mood contagion as opposed to social comparison because you know, you're exposed to fewer positive words. You yourself write very, very, very slightly fewer positive words yourself. Now, I haven't read the paper. Uh, we'll try to link it up. I mean, we're, we're going to talk about your paper in a second, but... Um... Did they, did they do any subgrouping and, and trying to, trying to, te yeah. No, which was sort of, I mean, which was interesting. Um, no, it's all very much just at this aggregate level. It's just the two treatment groups. So, um, you know, there obviously are sub subgroups because some people had 10% removed, some people had 90% removed and, and everything in between, but there's nothing in the paper that sort of discusses that. Yeah. Well, I mean, would you expect some kind of like, you know, well, one possible hypothesis is that there's a salience threshold, right? Yeah. And, and well, uh, to, to expand on that in case it's too obscure, uh, meaning that, uh, you know, if, it, if there are just a few, you know, if, if the balance of words is just slightly more 
happy than than negative, maybe there's not much of an effect. But if you know, if you're only seeing if you see ninety percent negative word oriented posts, that might you know that might trigger the effect. It might be more of a binary or at least uh, uh, kind of a nonlinear spectrum of responses, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, so this the study the study has been criticized on on methodological grounds, um, which I think are fair, although. I think what's not fair is to say, and therefore it doesn't tell us anything. Um, you know, the software is, is, doesn't recognize, it's not designed to recognize double negatives or slang. Um, and so I think there's probably a lot of miscoding going mm-hmm. on. Um, you know, and so there are a lot of methodological questions that you might have, but, you know, science is really messy. It's, almost never the case that one experiment tells us something definitively. That's just not the way science works, especially not with something this complicated, um, you know, sort of complex traits like you know, jealousy and, and resentment or whatever. Um, so this is one data point. And, you know, as they say, you know, more research should be done. Yeah. And, but what we learned here, at least in the popular press and, um, and then for your academic work, and is, is less important here than how we learned it. And the critique was that Facebook performed an experiment on thousands and thousands of people. You said 155,000, I think you said, uh, without their consent, uh, either in advance and without debriefing them afterwards and without any approval from a human uh, from the uh, an institutional review board or other kind of human subject approval mechanism. Uh, and there was even some argument that this was in violation of the law because they partnered with researchers who were who were subject to uh, um, federal law requiring uh, prior um, uh, consent, pr- the prior approval of an institutional review board when you uh, were not going to get direct consent from study participants. And, and so- even, even if not contrary to law, contrary to things like did the journal in which the study was published require all the research that it published to comply with those rules? even if there wasn't some other legal requirement. So the ethical requirements were sort of became front right. and center in, in people's discussions. And, and of the some various issues. ethical responsibilities, Facebook's ethical responsibility, the sure. researchers, the, the universities for whom they worked, and the journals, like all of these were <clears throat> were called into question. So, uh, and, and and Michelle, you, I mean, it was, I think, very popular on Twitter to pile on. I think I even piled on on Twitter. And <laughs> and, and, and I, I, I think I still do, but I want to hear what you you have to say, because I, I, there's some, but you, you, you were one of the ones to say, you know, there's basically nothing wrong with what they did. And, but go ahead. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wouldn't, I'm not sure I would say there's nothing wrong with what they did. Um, so, you're, you're right. There was, there was no explicit informed consent. I mean, there was a terms of service which use the word research after the fact. Um, so the word research is now in the terms of service. It wasn't at the time, but really, even if it was, who cares really, right? No one reads those things. Um, in, in research ethics and regulation land, terms of service is not you know, meaningful informed consent. Uh, terms of service that just says, um, you know, by, by opening an account, you agree to quote research is is leap years away from what we require in human subjects research land, which is a very specific list of elements of information disclosure um, dictated by the common rule supplemented by by IRBs. So there was no informed, no meaningful informed consent. Um, and ju- and there- just to clarify, we'll link the common rule is the is the rule that was produced by a certain committee in response to federal legislation that required it. And it's the rule which governs what uh, the standards for approval of, of human subject testing. Is that basically right? 
Basically, uh, it's a set of federal regulations that uh, were initially promulgated by HHS or its predecessor uh, agency, and then in 81 and then in 91 was adopted by, you know, a dozen plus other federal departments and agencies engaged in in conducting or funding some amount of human subjects research, which is why it's called now called the common rule. Uh, and it was the result of primarily the Tuskegee study, um, but a few other scandals in the 70s. Um, uh, Senator Kennedy held congressional hearings. The hearings led to the National Research Act of 1974, which provided, among other things, uh, established the National Commission, a National Bioethics Commission, whose task was to create a series of report of, of reports determining uh, what is research, what is practice, what's the relationship between them and and what how it, you know what are the principles, the ethical principles for conducting ethical human subjects research. And those it was really and there are lots of bioethics commissions historically, most of them don't have a lot of teeth. This one had a lot of teeth. Um, it, it was put into the the act that the secretary of HHS had to basically accept their recommendations for regulations unless the secretary put in writing and published in the federal register specific objections. So th- there was a, you know, a strong default rule that this commission of, of people uh, was, was going to create these regulations. And that's what happened. Um, the Belmont report is the most famous report that came out of the commission um, but they also had a report on IRBs, which is is really a more close um, uh, predecessor to the common rule. So really, the the regulations essentially codify the commission's works yeah. uh, work, and and yeah. So so that's the common rule, but you know it doesn't apply to all human subjects research in the land. So. You know, by its terms, it applies to federal agencies that have signed on to this who are conducting uh, or funding human subjects research. Then there are these contracts called federal-wide assurances between institutions and the federal government where the federal government invites institutions to voluntarily agree to apply the common rule to all of the human subjects research at that institution, including stuff that isn't funded. And that's how we've gotten to a situation where, you know, if you're at a major research university and someone has an NSF grant or or an NIH grant, they're subject to the common rule because, you know, through the spending clause, there's that sort of direct thing. But if that institution, if that school decides to do so, it's called checking the box. If you check the box, you have agreed to to subject all of the human subjects research at that institution to the common role. And that's how we get things like, you know, sociologists and, you know, economists and people who have general, who often have no, no federal grant funding whatsoever. Um, and their, their work is subject to, to IRB review. So that's kind of that's that. Now, Facebook, of yeah, course. But, yeah, is, but if you're a corporation or if you're right. a think tank with no federal funding and you don't ex- and you don't expect to get federal funding, then there's n- there's no law that 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 applies to you beyond, you know, maybe state tort law and maybe some other things, which could be breaks on the worst sorts of abuses. Uh, no, I think you're overstating it. The, the um, James Grimmelman um, yeah. it has a has a great piece on Medium, for example. Yeah, that, we'll link to it. That walks through. There, there are states that have laws that yes. have much more pervasive right. regulation of human subjects research. Right. So it's so. 
you're not left merely to a common law remedy, for example. Yeah, there could be uh, statutory. But, but instead, yes. there could be a statutory regime in place, which would apply to any corporation doing research as well right. as uh, some university. And, so and I should it say just too, depends on right. state law as well as national I, I didn't law. even mean to imply that you were totally free of any possible federal regulations because, of course, you're subject to the uh, Federal Trade Commission uh, Act. And there, there may be other right. acts which, which more indirectly regulate what you can do with human subjects that aren't specific. But, but you're right. There are a lot – as he pointed out in that article, in particular Maryland has – has a law which is very much like the common rule, which applies to all human research in in the state. It, it sounds would appear, like it. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, in fact, what Maryland law, what Maryland's law does, is simply say the common rule applies in our state, no matter what your status is. Um, it, it applies to all activities that are defined as human subjects research per the common rule, and we have no uh, no threshold criterion for whether you have a certain status that brings you within that. So citizen scientists would be subject to it and, you know, corporations in theory. Um, I will say that as far as I know, that that law has never been enforced or applied. Yeah, and, and, and it, gets, it could be if it were enforced, it could be more dramatic than it might sound to the listener at, at first at, upon first hearing because – uh, as he points out there, it, it's not just studies which are conducted physically in Maryland by researchers in Maryland, but for example, the Facebook study. He calculates the possibility that uh, no Maryland users were subject to manipulation at what, less than 1% based on the number that they, something like that. But it is, it's very, very, very likely that the Facebook study operated on some Maryland Facebook users, and it was his position that that law applied to that study, uh, at least uh, with respect to the people in Maryland who were experimented on. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the other reason why, it, you know, if that law were actually enforced would be more dramatic than listeners might realize is because of the way the federal common rule defines research. It is very, very broad. Um, under the right circumstances, simply talking to someone is human subjects research. So, People think, well, I don't want to be experimented on without my <laughs> right. consent. You know, you can't be just giving me a drug and like, you know, sure. I think but, they're thinking of alien probes and that sort of thing. Right? <laughs> <laughs> human research you know, sounds. They're, they're, they're thinking, I mean, they're thinking, of, and I mean, there is a history of, of horrific things. Yep. The, the tippy top of that scale, of course, is the Nazi so-called experiments and, and the very similar things that the Japanese did um, in their camps, you know, in the same, in the same era. And Tuskegee uh, and, you yeah, know, some of the things Tus here. Tuskegee yeah. is, is. Yes, down down a big notch from that, and and yeah, there's a whole range of things that are that are very bad. But the definition of research sweeps breathtakingly broadly, uh, and includes surveys, interviews, talking to people. I mean, it's just any you know, it, it's it's incredibly broad. Um, and, and this gets us to your point about the. I mean, this is your major contribution in this article is this idea of the A B illusion that you that as you call it, and. And I just want to start by uh, thinking about like what's different about what Facebook did and then suppose you've got just a, a regular street front business. Maybe they sell burritos. Why okay. not? Why not? I, yeah, love, sure. I love burritos. Burritos are great. So it's a burrito uh, shop and they've got some signage out front and it's maybe yellow and red and with a lightning bolt or something. I don't know what it is. Something yeah. like that, right? And and then they say, you know what? Maybe we could get more customers with different colors and a different kind of sign. So the next month they put out a different kind of sign. And in fact, they get fewer customers, and so they go back to the old kind of signage. Now, is that a is that an experiment on human beings? Haven't they done kind of an A B test there? And 
Well, an A-B test would involve doing it at the same time. So you'd have yeah. two burrito shops, right? Yeah, one on, one in different corners, and you'd have to try to make sure that, you know, they were controlled for similar exposure to potential customers, et cetera, et cetera. But that's, that's yeah, in fact I didn't what say, Google I didn't does, say, right? I didn't say it was a good A-B test. <laughs> no, but, but hold on. So the reason, but I think it's important because you said they experienced a lower, they had lower uh, uptake, lower customers. So they said, they say, go back to the other side. Maybe the reason they had lower customers had nothing to do with the sign at all. It was simply, that there was, you know, something in the economy made people eat out less. Right. Um, it was fall 2008. The market had just crashed. Well, this is, yeah. um, you know, exactly. so, so you don't know what to attribute it to. And that's why not having two different stores with two different storefronts going at the same time under circumstances that are otherwise identical or at least highly similar. Yeah. It, it really impairs your ability uh, to look, make an inference. I, yeah, I don't want to push on it too much because, you know, I, I just think it's a, you know, I, I would think of that as a really, really bad A-B test because it's separated in time and it's not using, it's not randomized. The more you randomize it, the more you make the, the A and the B similar in every respect except for the experimental condition, the better information you would expect to get out yeah, of it. I don't general, know why right? you want to call that an A-B test yeah. at all. It is a time-wise, ser- it is a serial use of A. And then at some later point, B, under conditions that permit you to make basically no good inference. I about will just effects. note that you use the terms A and B in your description. <laughs> I, I'm, yeah, but I, I, I totally agree with Joe. Now I, now I want you to. Uh, I, you, Michelle, you are not the first, nor will you be the last. So and Michelle, I want to make clear, I now want to make Christian eat one of those biscuits. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, so, you know, in, in, so I have a New York Times uh, essay or op-ed that, uh, you know, came out around the same time as, as the law review article where I've sort of focused on, on just this sort of idea of, of this AB illusion and what you're comparing it to is what you say. I mean, this is what most of us do. Um, and anyone who has any sort of business or if you're a teacher, uh, if you're, you know, a legal practitioner, whoever you are, you're doing something, you have some goal, you want to do something well, you try something, you, if you're thoughtful, you observe the results or you try to, and then if the results aren't what you hope for, you adjust something, you try again. It's a sort of, you know, process of elimination serial thing like this burrito stand, but you know, because of all of the other variables that you aren't controlling for, you really can't be sure that the results that you get, good or bad, are caused by um, any of the things that you're adjusting. So in the op-ed, you know, the example is the simple one of a 401k nudge, right? So, you know, you're a CEO and you think, boy, we have this really generous matching plan that really all people should take advantage of, and yet some employees aren't signing up. And there's some you know, nudge-based empirical evidence to suggest that if you tell people that their peer group is doing something, that might make them more likely to do it too. So one idea is instead of just sending out the usual letter that I did last year, maybe this time I'll send out a letter and I'll add a paragraph that says, by the way, for your fellow employees in your five-year or 10-year age range, you know, 90% of them have have checked the box and signed into this matching 401k program. Uh, and maybe that'll work. And you could do that. And it's hard for me to imagine that anybody would object to that ethically, that anyone would say, well, but you know, you don't who knows what the effects of that could be. Um, it could be that people would would uh, enroll in the 401k matching prep, uh, plan more, or it could be that it would have the opposite effect. Who knows? This is untested, you know, territory. It's true. It is. But I doubt that anybody would say, you know, that that's, that that's ethically problematic. 
Um, but if you really wanted to actually learn something uh, in a rigorous way, what you would do is send out the two different versions of the letters at the same time, randomizing which employees got which. And that way you're controlling for um, you know, anything that's happening in the background. Like maybe Thaler and Sunstein just published Nudge and maybe people read about 401ks, right? And so maybe mm-hmm. that there's an uptick in that caused by that, or maybe there's a change in the tax code and, and that is causing people to, to have a different thing. So if you do things at, you know, in time zero and then time one and then time two, you're really vulnerable to the objection that what you're seeing is, is an artifact of other variables that you haven't controlled for. Whereas if you do it at the same time, um, you can call that's an A-B test. The other word for it is an RCT, a randomized controlled trial. It's roughly the same thing. Um, and that allows you to infer causation in a way that, you know, observing the result of one thing or one thing followed by a second thing followed by the third or the first thing again doesn't. And an effort to get consent in advance will obviously destroy the entire thing, right? It, it, there is no way to get pre-consent. You'd, you'd have to, at best, debrief after, tell your employees, you know, we tried this, here's what we learned. Um, and, you know, perhaps if you're a CEO, you think, okay, and I need to be prepared in the event that either one group gets disadvantaged or the other group gets advantaged, I need to be able, when I tell them all about it, I need to say, and here's the thing we're doing to ameliorate the difference we just created, right? But but debriefing is the way to handle the question, it seems to me, because it's a psychological study, not a biomedical study where it doesn't make any difference whether you tell people I'm about to give you this cancer drug or some alternative drug your body is going to assimilate the drug no matter what your thoughts yeah, are about it. Yeah, but Michelle doesn't think there's an ethical obligation to debrief in this context. In fact, you, you think... Well, that's not true. In that, you don't think... You, you do think there is in that context. Sure, but, sure, sure. So, but, I, you know, I should, circle back, I should circle back to what I started to say when you said that I think there's nothing wrong with what Facebook did. Um, I don't, that's not... I wouldn't go that far. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it is permissible under the common rule and, and common principles of research ethics. And again, this isn't, some people will say, well, you're making a legal argument. What about the ethical argument? No, I'm making both. Um, the common rule, you know, and, and I've, I've defended this provision of the common rule as an ethical matter, and it was basically invented by ethicists. So if there's any time to conflate law and ethics, this is it. Um, <laughs> but it, the, the the general idea is that when inf- informed consent, meaning ex ante, you know, advanced informed consent, is infeasible, and the risks of a study to users to subjects are no more than minimal, then an IRB may approve uh, the uh, you know a waiver of, of informed consent, and that is something that hap- that's very common in a range of of studies. It, Informed consent in advance is, of course, not always infeasible, um, and it, it shouldn't be. We shouldn't mistake infeasibility for you know inconvenience. Uh, well, I just don't want to get informed consent. That's not that's not what the the exception is. It's really about infeasibility, and in particular about this type of situation where you would just badly bias the results in exactly the way that that Joe explained. Um, but the common rule then does say, you know, when appropriate you debrief. And I think that's, you know, as an ethical matter, that's that's correct. Now, the phrase when appropriate is important. There are perhaps rare cases where debriefing might cause more harm than good. Um, you know, there was uh, a, another podcast, it's called something like, you know, 
uh, I don't know, I'll forget something, something like an IRB podcast and, and they interviewed someone about the Facebook experiment and he is, I don't know, he's some sort of psychologist and he's like an, also an IRB person, whatever. He opined that the, the, the most harmful thing about this whole mood and contagion experiment was people learning about it and freaking out about it. <laughs> and I think that that's absolutely correct. Um, and I think that's an argument not against debriefing per se. It's an argument against bad debriefing by a sensationalistic media that wanted clicks and in many cases didn't really take the time to fully understand what what was going on here. Um, yeah, and, and by the way, just, who definitely aren't obliged to follow any ethical guidelines from an IRB? Yeah, well, let me, let me, can we, if we can just stick to, <laughs> I want to stick to the CEO, I want to stick to the imaginary yeah. CEO from your, because I have some real concerns about the Facebook example that I want to explore with you and maybe figure out why I'm wrong. But uh, with, for the CEO thing, so, so you, you say that if the CEO conducts what you would call true AB testing, uh, that there may be an ethical obligation to debrief the employees after that has been done. But if the CEO had made an intuitive judgment based on reading, you know, Thaler and Sunstein to go ahead and do the nudge one year and said, you know, that didn't work so well, so I'm going to go back and do the other thing. And so it had done them in, in a temporal series rather than through true A-B testing. There would be not an obligation to debrief. So I'm wondering how much this uh, – when we get taken into human subject testing land and its uh, corresponding ethical responsibilities or, or tree of ethical decision-making is – what is it that kicks it over there? Is it that it looks kind of like a study looks? Is it that it looks like better science? Or, for example, for, let me give you just one more hypothetical to work with here. Suppose a an employer or a CEO had been giving employee of the year awards, right? And uh, and then was wondering, you know what? I've read this uh, uh, Sunstein and Thaler thing and I'm, or, or some other psychological literature. And now I'm like worried that people are comparing themselves and maybe they're unhappier. So I'm actually going to look at you know, this work product that I'm otherwise entitled to look at. And I, and I do look at, but I'm looked for like these keywords that indicate happiness or unhappiness. And if I find that there's more unhappiness directly after the award, you know what, I'm just going to stop doing it. Right. And, and so what I'm trying to get at here is if you think that there's an ethical obligation to disclose that, dis- that the decision was in response to this, or I looked at your work product for this reason, or if it's, or, or not, is it because the thing that the CEO is doing looks like a scientific study in like an A-B testing sense, or is it because what's going on is an investigation into, uh, it, it, it's basically trying to figure out and making inferences about your psychological state in ways you might not have expected? You know what I mean? I, I, I'm just trying to figure out what kicks us over into the land where we start to worry about the tree of dis- ethical decision-making that normally corresponds to traditional psychological experimenting. Right. Well, so, you know, one of the the points that I'm trying to make in, in my work on this is that we shouldn't ha- we shouldn't recognize such a sharp distinction between the ethical obligations of research versus practice. Um, that is the way that that the regulations have evolved. Um, but, you know, the AB illusion is basically the idea, the tendency of, of people, including all of us, including myself, to have a sort of instinctual reaction to a, a randomization, an AB test that says, oh, you know, you're, you're treating two groups of people differently somehow. And you're, you know, it's an experiment. You're studying us somehow. You're treating um, them as means rather than ends, that sort of thing, right? That, I guess. Yeah. That's sort of that. I mean, there's a whole range of, of criticisms. And so doing that without consent is, is very ethically problematic. But those same people, I, I think, would not say that serially testing 
um, the same interventions one at a time. I don't think anybody, uh, unless the intervention was itself like like especially troublesome or dangerous, you know. I mean, obviously, a CEO couldn't like start just drugging, you know, their their employees, like slipping Mickey's into their employees, you know, <laughs> regard regardless of whether there was a control group or not. Right. But um, right, so I don't think anyone would would complain that the CEO had tried one letter one year, didn't like the results, tried a different letter the uh, the next year looked at those results. No one would complain about that. Um, that's just what people, that's kind of life. That's what people do. And the question is, should we be more concerned if she's simply doing that at the same time in order to get actually better results? And I think in a lot of cases, the answer is not only should it not be automatically worse, you know, it, it should in some cases be, be ethically preferable. Mm-hmm. Um, because you're actually doing something more quickly and efficiently and getting getting answers rather than kind of dilly-dallying around with one year this, one year that, without any good data that's, that doesn't really tell you anything of value. Um, so, I mean, as far as debriefing goes, you know, it, it, as far as debriefing in the context of like a serial intervention, I mean – you know, I don't know if a CEO has an obligation to tell the rest of the company, you know, her what's behind her decision making on, on every single decision she makes, right? right? I mean, that doesn't seem quite feasible. Um, but I mean, in general, I think transparency is a good thing, and I think it it makes for a, a you know a, a healthy workplace. Um, so yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but, but I'm wondering in, in particular, like you. Like you resisted the idea that there was no ethical obligation to debrief after an A-B test over the, with the 401k example, right? And, and you said, yeah, I'm not saying that. There may be an, an ethical obligation, which must sound in this kind of human experimentation thing. And to is, is, and, and again, is, is that because of the A-B structure? Or would you say that there is an ethical obligation arising from the same concerns about human experimentation in the example I gave of the you know, looking at people's work product for negative and positive emotional valences after an employee of the year award and then deciding whether to continue that program on that basis. Like that's, that's not a sound of a study. Maybe it does it depend on how good the science is. I mean, you know, what should trigger it? Uh, I don't know. You know, I think, I think it depends on in part, it depends on the relationship between the person doing an AB test and the person who's being tested. So, it, you know, it feels a little bit different to me in the CEO context because, you know, there's this underlying assumption that you know, CEOs have uh, the right to to make business decisions, and you know they they do the best they can. And um, because I don't really think that that trying A and B at the same time as opposed to sequentially necessarily makes uh, an ethical difference, I'm not sure that that you know my debriefing trigger is is activated in in one versus the other. Um, I think. You know, when when you have a different situation, I mean, for example, in a sort of lab setting where you bring people in and you quote unquote consent them to something, but in fact you have confederates who are actually actors and, you know, it's sort of a form of deceptive research, which again is necessary to, to get a lot of the, uh, the behavioral knowledge that we have, then I think it's, you know, it's really incumbent upon the researcher to debrief in part because you have explicitly told someone something that's not true. Um, and it, it just seems respectful to kind of correct that record. There can also be particular welfare reasons to do that. So, I, you know, you can imagine 
studies where, um, uh, you know, well, for instance, I mean, Milgram's famous study of, you know, the electric volts, subjects came away thinking that they had actually, those who complied, came away thinking that they had actually caused people harm. Right. Uh, obviously, it's important to tell them, you know, whatever whatever you want to take away from this and, you know, whatever you want to, however you want to view yourself after this, n- at least know this. Nobody was physically harmed. You didn't actually shock anybody. I mean, that it, that seems important to tell people that they aren't carrying that with them for the rest of their lives. And there are lots of less dramatic examples of that. Um, and, that and that's an know. example of this, like, where... We can identify an ethical obligation that sounds in uh, manipulation of human psychology that's kind of continuous with the other reasons we require uh, or that we should require, you know, disclosure and consent. And so that's all of a piece. And it seems like what's difficult here is a is, is a variation of what's often difficult in the law, right? The law depends on categorizations of things and different conclusions follow from from being in different categories. And that inevitably is going to put a lot of pressure on borderline cases or on arguing that things are in fact borderline cases and therefore deserve some mixed treatment or, you know, the lawyers are going to, you know, there's a whole famous literature about the way that strict categorizations end up breaking down into, into, into spectra eventually. And I wonder if what's going on here, right, is that, you know, I don't know if it's learning more about the brain. There was, there was just a thing today about how, you know, a lot of these psychological experiments that we rely on, in fact, haven't been replicated as strongly as you see this news today. So, yeah. like, you know, I don't know how much we actually know about the brain and and how all of the the recent research about this adds up. But um, but there there's at least the potential for kind of more amateur deployment of psychological experiments. You know, people are aware of nudging and of being not completely straightforward with people about how you're measuring what they do. Um and so maybe there's more stuff that's like closer to the line that's within the reach of everyday people and outside of laboratory conditions. And so maybe this is what's causing this this problem, the inability to see what the CEO's legal and ethical obligations are under various scenarios. I mean, there's there's because the category itself is ill-defined. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm not describing it very well, but I, I'm struggling to figure out what I think the CEO should have to do. And um, well, yeah. so the legal the legal line. Uh, which I think is really problematic, um, defines research by the the intention of the the person, the actor. So if your purpose is to contribute to generalizable knowledge, then it's research. Uh, if your purpose isn't, then it's not. So that includes, you know, if your purpose is pure quality improvement or sadism or you know idle curiosity or whatever, um, and and the same activity with the same predicted effect on the same people are treated dramatically differently, all depending on the intention of the actor. And look, as an ethicist, I think intentions are important often, but goodness, they're not that important. Uh, you know, I, I tend to care more about consequences, frankly. And that, you know, that is a sort of troubling line. So had, had Facebook done exactly what it did, but not published the results and simply used it purely for internal purposes, even if it were subject to the common rule, it wouldn't have been considered human subjects research because it wouldn't be defined as research because the intent wasn't to contribute to generalizable knowledge. Yeah. And, and that when is we interpret line. When we interpret, moreover, I think, when we interpret the ethical obligations uh, that might follow from a context where they publish it, when we interpret those obligations in such a way that 
people are sort of wildly denouncing things that it turn out you probably shouldn't denounce under the under the rules um we're creating an odd situation where they're now less inclined to share and contribute to public knowledge because they feel like oh you know we're just going to get it in the neck just keep it a secret right that's that's an unfortunate uh, uh, consequence of the way things played out it given that and i read your piece in wired and 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 i you know i should say by way of background um you know i i have a master's degree in social psychology so I did some of this sort of research. Um, I've served on an IRB. Um, uh, so, you know, I have some familiarity with some of these things. And I, I found your your account in Wired quite persuasive that, that if you really carefully sift through what we know about the Facebook study, um, the, the wild denunciations that happened immediately in the wake of it, if, if people thought they were prudently applying the common rule and other things, that's just not, not true. It's not accurate, right? The denunciations were not fair. They were themselves unfair. That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's right. I mean, so, some of them, you know, some of the criticisms were conflated with Facebook and people's extreme dislike of Facebook and, and their sort of underlying privacy practices. Some of them were conflated with, a, you know, a, an objection to the underlying algorithm practice. Some of them were based on a misunderstanding of what happened and, and an assumption that researchers were actually reading this data so that there was like identifiable data that people had access to. And then some of it was based on this myth that informed consent is an absolute ethical and legal legal requirement of human subjects research, which is just not true. Well, here's so let, let's go to Facebook, regardless of whether people were mistaken about um, uh, the, the legal rules applicable to research uh, or, or what have you. I, there, there seems to me uh, um, like I'm one of the ones who was not thrilled about Facebook's experiment here. And it has nothing to do with like being confused about whether it was in fact a research experiment subject to the rules or whether the researchers themselves had obligations to the journal. It has to do, uh, as you alluded to, with a concern about Facebook's peculiar position and the kind of thing that they did here. And I'm not as, you know, I, I'm willing to be persuaded because it, it, maybe I'm it is missing something here. Um, but, but I don't think that like popular de- um, um, uh, denouncing of what Facebook did is necessarily misguided or 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 fails to understand applicable legal or or ethical principles i think the popular um well it, at least in some corners kind of the popular denunciation rested was was a was a uh didn't rest on a particular category of problem like human research problem or etc so let me try to be more concrete facebook has a very unique uh, very unique there we go there we go. Uh, Facebook has a unique position uh, in maybe the history of the world, right? Because they have this very popular platform. It is the the means through. It's like owning the town square, but it's a town square which connects people all over the world and is a platform for people to inform their friends and family of important things in their lives, right? So it is. It, it is that. It is a sticky platform because it's kind of hard to, you know, as as Google has found out, and who has, you know, more resources to do this kind of thing than Google. It's very complicated to construct a competing social graph, right? That uh, where people can kind of fluidly move between these things. All your friends are on Facebook, so you're there. I'd rather all my friends be on Twitter, frankly, um, as as badly as Twitter's been run in some ways in the past. Like a, for me, it's a more appealing platform. But but most of my friends are on Facebook. Um, so, you know, I, I'm on both, but so it's very hard to get off of. Um, 
And yet Facebook, unlike just about like you think about communications platforms, whether they're telephones or um, or even television, which is more one way communication. Facebook does something weird in this space, which is not just to host these conversations, but to mediate them, to choose what aspects to show you. It's almost like there's this other third unseen person with you all of the time. And you're like you're talking with and they'll block you from talking to your friend in a certain context. Right. Or you won't hear what they have to say. Like to me, that's like. Has that ever been done before as as pervasively? And so it's within that context that I have maybe special worries about Facebook's ability to affect my emotions and feelings using as a tool, right? Using as a tool, it's presentation to me of what I would consider, you know, intimate or at least friendly relationships. That to me, it's that pairing. And I don't think you can pull them apart. I don't know if that makes any sense, but. No, it, it does make sense. Um, I, I just, uh, you know, I mean, tell me if I'm missing something, but it, it strikes me that what you're saying is you have qualms about their practice of showing you a selective portion of what you're eligible to see, which is a perfectly reasonable objection to have. And I, you know, that's not my sort of area of expertise, you know, so I'll, I, I don't, I don't, you know, I sort of said before, I mean, I kind of think that they, as a company, you know, they have to find a way of existing by attracting users. They have to, you know, it's based on engagement metrics and seems like they have a right to do it. I mean, and and they're doing it in a way that their own, you know, investigations suggest most users prefer, whether they realize it or not, or whether they say it or not. Um, maybe that's wrong. I mean, maybe if, if Facebook is so important, I mean, some have said, look, this is at the point of a, of a utility. So maybe fine, maybe it should be regulated like a, a public utility. That's kind of, you know, not my area of expertise. So I'm, I'm certainly open to that range of, of arguments. My only response is what you're objecting to is something that has existed since 2006 without interruption on Facebook. It's not anything. It's not unique to the experiment. And in fact, the experiment was designed to try to determine the consequences of this practice that you have qualms about. So I I guess I just, you know, I'm totally open to the qualms. I just think it's odd to focus your objection on an experiment that was designed to try to nail down the actual effects of that process. In order that it might be done better for the users themselves, given the sense in which Facebook's interests and the user's interests may align in some circumstances. And I just don't make that assumption. Well, so I think it's it's not an assumption. It's a fact. It is the fact that Facebook's interests and your interests do align sometimes. I, I don't think it's a situation where we're talking about an entity that's interests and your interests could never be aligned. No, I'm not saying that. I'm I'm saying that. So they were studying engagements, which are which are likes, shares, comments, right? They they're studying the effect on engagements of manipulating uh, what they uh, concluded were positive and negative emotional words. Well, right. no, they were they were studying the effect on how many positive and negative words you used yourself. Oh, right, and right, right, right. Previously, right, right. they had looked at the effect on engagement of showing people just the whole time. A chronology. Yeah, right, yeah. right, 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 right. And um, I don't know that, I don't think they published that by the way. So I, I don't know any more about that. Okay. So, so it, it, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry about that. So in both cases though, the, there's kind of a proxy for the user's best interests and, and what Facebook thinks it, its own best interest is. So 
for you to, you know, to say that it's aligned in the conducting of these studies, like, so they were saying in the first example uh, that Michelle raises the, should we show them the whole timeline or should we edit the timeline, right? That if we got more engagements from the edited timeline, that that's better. And I can see how that's clearly better for Facebook or, or that the, the conclusion that's better for Facebook is much easier to reach, right? And I certainly trust Facebook to know what's better for Facebook, right? <laughs> to say that the engagements are, the, the increased engagements are evidence of that, the fact that it's better for the user is, you know, that's a tougher conclusion to reach. And it's aided by the fact that, um, it, that in many contexts such as this, what we rely on is the fact that if they are wrong about that, um, if they're wrong that what's good for them is can be good for their users, and they therefore have many fewer users, ultimately it will fail as an enterprise. Yeah, that's just an yes. That's just a, a variation of saying if they are wrong about what their users want, their users will go to competitors, and they will. It's, it's the your, your Adam Smith, your normal Adam Smith argument, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't pulled out uh, an I'm Adam not, Smith in a while, uh, uh, <laughs> which is look, totally wrong. Like it's a total abuse of like all the of Adam Smith, and I, I get that, you know. So, but um, but I'm I'm trying to make a non-trivial point here, which is that the, that is a sense in which the the um. The, we don't merely have to uh, rest on an assumption that interests might be aligned. There's actually a feedback mechanism in place that can verify that uh, in real terms. I just, A, Facebook is very hard to exit. B, it's very hard to detect the decisions that it's making with respect to what it's showing you, right? So, boy, do I like the way that this, un you know, imagine again, we're in this scenario where there's this unseen wraith who's mediating all of your in-person interactions with people, right? right? And and the question is, do you like the way this unseen wraith is, is mediating all of your interactions between people? And you're like, well, I don't actually know how this wraith is doing this uh, let me compare it to this other unseen wraith over here who's doing this like you can't like maybe you could compare your google plus experience to your twitter experience to your facebook experience and of course they all have different kind of models of how to build the social graph which makes it hard there's no like direct competitor to facebook right. which shows which just has a different timeline that it shows you and so i'm very skeptical of well, exit as a possibility and the free market there, there, there is what a minute twitter you, you've mentioned that there is a competitor that takes a different approach they, and you happen to use both. No, they, but they, I, I do use both. They take a different approach, not only to editing the timeline, but to how your timeline is constructed. Although Facebook has moved closer to Twitter with the ability to follow and like rather than just friend. And Twitter's moved closer to Facebook by letting people kind of lock their profiles. So the dynamics of how you create that social graph have kind of merged a little bit. But still, by far, the dominant way that you create a social graph in Twitter is to follow people, right? Unilaterally follow people. And in, and in Facebook, it's to friend people, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a mutual thing. And so I've often thought, you know, as I look at people's follow lists and friend lists that like Facebook is Facebook is populated by the friends you have and Twitter is populated by the friends you wish you had. Right. That's one way of seeing the way that they just present totally different experiences. But where is the So, you know, the why aren't there competitors uh, for Facebook in terms of the friends that you actually have and how you talk with one another? Like that's Google Plus was kind of supposed to be that, but it doesn't it's really hard to exit Facebook. And this is why, you know, I, I have some sympathy towards the, uh, the way Michelle described other people's description of it as basically approaching a utility, right? It is a, it's an underlying infrastructure for right. me to talk to my friends using the model of 
um, friending, right? Where what I see are people who have a and mutual... so at the very least, it's a testament to people's poor understanding of the benefits of experimentation that they recoil in horror when the thing that is so important to their lives is trying to do things on a more evidence based approach. No, well, right? Because be... it is at least ironic that that w- when people both rely so heavily on something and then say, oh my God, how dare you try to run that in a more evidence-based way that might actually benefit me. But that would be true. Given how important it is uh, to me. How that, dare you try to make my be life true better? If everybody knew that Facebook was applying and, and what they were doing to edit the timeline. In other words, the slice of my friendship interactions that I'm seeing, right, is not everything that all my friends have posted. I'm not in control of that. Someone else is in control of it and they're in control of it for their purposes, right? To make me use their site more and see their ads more and to enrich their business. We hope, as you guys have said, right, that this is a virtuous cycle, that what's good for Facebook is good for us. It could be. But I I don't make that assumption. I wasn't Uh, assuming it. I was saying it could be and it it might not be. it, It could be. But the fact is people don't know they don't I mean, ah. as, they don't know that that timeline is being edited they don't know the criteria that are being used and right. so and, and, so some portion of the people denouncing the experiment were denouncing it out of a profound ignorance of the background conditions in which case you know some of this is just noise from bozos that well, one ought no, to ignore right not, not as and not as no 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 as as, <laughs> as so so for me right the fact that facebook was just an additional problem with the whole Facebook enterprise, right? It's like ah. if you found out, so so suppose you knew there was this in-person wraith mediating. So like someone would talk next to you, like physically talk next to you, but the wraith can make it so you don't hear what they're saying, right? <laughs> and they're operating according to something which pleases the wraith in some way, right? And then you find out that the wraith is conducting an experiment by blocking only happy things or only sad things. Like to me, that would be an additional reason to say, boy, I wonder if this whole wraith idea is a good idea for in-person interactions, <laughs> right? right? And so to me, and, and, and to me uh, also, Michelle, yeah. you should just break in any time, but um, it touches your work, I think, because it makes the, um, the reason it concerns me in, in, in the context of the human subject stuff, right, is that it, the fact that they're already engaging in this very peculiar mediation of a human activity on a massive scale, right? To me, makes more, uh, um, uh, both more difficult and essential an analysis of, of, of what kind of testing we want to occur, right? That, that's, that's all. Boy. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I guess, I guess I, I'm not convinced that, that, any of your qualms directly relate to the experiment. Uh, I guess I'm still missing, I'm still missing that. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not going to push back too hard on the, you know, your, your criticisms of the underlying practice. Um, I, you know, I'm vaguely skeptical about that, but I don't have strong views. I know there are people who, who really share that view that it's just really hard to exit Facebook. I sometimes, you know, I make that point sometimes when I give talks about this and inevitably I have a lot of people in the audience like look at each other very puzzled and some of them come up to me afterwards and what are you talking about? I'm not on Facebook. My wife isn't, you know, so-and-so isn't on Facebook. Right. What do you mean? What do you mean? It's like, what do you mean it's necessary? And I'm like, I don't know. You know, I don't know. Um, I, so I, I don't know. Um, it, it, maybe it's, you know, maybe this is an unreasonable concern. Maybe it's easier than I think to exit Facebook and, and, uh, of course, part of the psychology of editing, uh, part of the purposes of editing the timeline and, and, part of Facebook's entire purpose is, is to make it psychologically difficult to exit, right? They want people to want to enter and they want you, I mean, perhaps for good reasons, they want you not to want to exit, 
right? And so that's their kind of whole purpose. And and, and again, just to add, just to maybe I'm not going anywhere with this, but just to put a finer point on it, it's not to me. It's not that the uh, that the A/B testing that they did was um, on its own disconnected from everything else an experiment which required in my mind all of the uh usual IRB procedures of a human it it's it's not that in isolation it's in the context of the both the massive scale the difficulty to exit and the way that they are uh the the, the way that they are manipulating your relationships with other people and and I say manipulating that makes it sound intentional like someone is actually trying to affect things right but the fact is that your relationships relationships with others are being affected by what they do this latest thing is 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 a in the same way that if you had an, an editor there near you editing what you talked about with your friends, when they did something like this, you might say, um, "Boy, you know, I wonder if this is really a good idea." And this latest thing makes me wonder whether I want someone serving this role, and, and that's the thing. So, I, I mean, I take the point, but I just you know, one pushback, I think this is true of, of almost everything. So, you know, when a newspaper decides what stories to run, what stories not to run, which headline to use, which ones to put on, on page one versus page two, they are manipulating your experience with the day's events or however you want to characterize it. Right. I mean, th- there's no kind of neutral way to present information. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's and, there's baselines and then there's actions against those baselines. And yeah. the one choice people don't have is to not affect others, yeah. right? They're they're affecting others, and their and their baselines are shifting. So, yeah, that, and that's why I think the and I, I had this, which is what's so powerful about what and to me it, one of the things that's so powerful about Michelle's stuff is that it opens my eyes more to the fact that there's actually much more to think through ethically in this scenario merely than their A B test. Oh yeah, and there's got, the there's yeah. the ethics of simply unilaterally deciding to do something with much less good evidence. Yeah. Or much less put in place in advance to learn something from your action. And I'm not questioning. I mean, I think that the AB illusion I, that resonates with me, right? And 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 it opens my. The reason I'm thinking about all these things is because of what what Michelle wrote. And and I had also thought about like old TV news, uh, the the world of of a few powerful newspapers affecting our whole idea of the world. Like this is that's certainly true, including social relationships. Exactly. Ex- well, that's so, so. Here, this is the thing, though. Like Facebook is different. Because it doesn't, it doesn't just stand in between you and your learning about the world at large. It stands between you and your friends. It affects your view of relationships that we, that, that human beings have always been in control of. Yeah. Right? So do all these media, and they know it, right? They know those of us who, like, in your circle of friends, you might be reading similar publications, you might be listening to similar radio programs or podcasts, for that matter. You so so, and they know that. Right. They rely on word of mouth among people to to (laughs) to engender listener bases and reader bases. So this is so. So what you just said is every bit as true of these other things. All right. We got we got to let Michelle in because she's sighing. She's sighing with such such impatience at at my idiocy uh, that we're going to. Yeah. Come on in. Come on in, Michelle. It's it's true of the telephone. It's true of email. Anything that allows you to connect with people in a different or, you know, less frictionful way than before is going to affect your relationships with people, right? And, and, and so Facebook, that's true of Facebook. Now there's a second layer of this, well, of the things that Facebook as a platform is allowing your friends to share with you, Facebook is then selecting a piece of it. Um, that's, you know, the, the curated algorithm. But by the way, if you really don't like that, 
go back to, you know, pre-2006 and just ignore your homepage. And if you want to know what, what is happening with someone's life, just toggle on over to their particular Facebook page, read, you know, read their page, then go to your next friend and so on. Um, I mean, that is an alternative. That's an, a non-filtered way. Well, they, they could they could do reverse chronology. I mean, they they could. The question is, there were some empirical questions about whether people would rather, you know, if you could easily hit a button that turned everything on or everything not. I mean, it, it, the alternative is not that you have to click on every page. It's that, that you get one page which shows everything in reverse chronological order. But well, that's, let, a possi- that's a possible yeah. internal. I'm just saying that yeah. the alternative I raised is an actual alternative right now if you really – but but think yeah. about the telephone. So I, I think this is a really interesting one. So what if in the early days of the telephone, you know, they do the switchboards and all of that, and they were and, and they said, boy, it'd be great if people used more, use the telephone more. And what we find is that um, if if we connect people, at, say, after nine o'clock at night, they tend to use the telephone less the next day and people who use it more. And they, they, they study these things. And so they, they do kind of an A-B test because they know these are just casual observations and maybe the kind of people who call after nine or just less heavy, whatever, right? And so they just randomly decide whether to connect people uh, on the phone and they split them into two groups and they, uh, and maybe it's at a time when not all calls can be connected. Cause maybe there's one operator there and it takes them some time to do it. And so they, 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 uh, methodically connect or don't connect based on some criteria in order to increase engagement with the telephone in the future. And, uh, so it's not necessarily content based and maybe that's even, you know, uh, more important in the, in the Facebook context, but it's nonetheless, they're splitting users into groups in order. I think people would have been upset about that. Um, and especially if there had been a way to connect or not connect calls based on the content of the last conversations that were had, if there were an operator listening in and said, you know what, if it was a sad call, uh, or, or if it's a sad call, I'm, I'm not going to connect them again for like three hours. Like maybe they need to cool off, but if it was a happy call, I'm going to connect them to their next call. Or maybe these particular connections are typically happy or sad because I've been listening to them all. Uh, and uh, and so I'm going to connect the ones that are happy and not the ones that are sad. I think people would be upset about that, right? But that's, of course, not how the telephone works. Every call is connected. Right. Well, it's also not, to be fair, how the Facebook study worked either. I yeah. mean, no one no one was listening in on, on you know, and making a person like a, a post-by-post decision about, you know, paternalistic decision about, oh, you can't handle, you know, this bad news yeah. from Uncle Fred or whatever. Um, and, and I do think there's a little bit of a difference between, you know, something that is an all, you know, a really a public utility and a company offering a product. Now there is this question. I mean, maybe Facebook should should be lumped into the former category, um, but to the extent it's not, you know, I don't know. Like if I'm if I'm Golden Delicious or whatever. I mean, if I'm an Apple producer, you know, like not the computer but the fruit, I'm going to try to make a, an apple that is attractive under the glaring lights of the grocery store. And then I'm also going to want to make it taste good because otherwise no one will come back if it tastes like plastic. And you know, I have an incentive to make my product enjoyable and. You know, I, I'm I'm trying, yeah, I'm trying to get you to buy it because that's the point, right? Yeah. But it dovetails with you because you too want to enjoy your apple, you know. And and I mean, yeah. And I there know. I'm there I'm definitely with you. It's 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 this. I think maybe where we if we disagree, and I don't know that we do. Uh, I know that Joe and I disagree because that's just my default assumption. <laughs> but uh, uh, it's it's over this kind of Facebook exceptionalism point, right? That there's something weird and different about Facebook that makes their use of this kind of A/B consumer testing different in kind than the Apple producer or the burrito stand or even the CEO 
who's making the 401k nudge. And you, you and I agree that, um, the well, maybe you don't think this, but I think it's the case that um, that when something is more like an inescapable utility, mm-hmm. and maybe Facebook is in that category, maybe it's not, but the more it approaches that status, the more important it is that if it engages in this sort of experimentation to make evidence-based policy choices, that if it doesn't get informed consent, that it debrief effectively. That, that it, to me, that becomes ethically more important because, because the fact that it's inescapable makes evidence-based policymaking, in my view, more desirable, not less. Yeah. So to get the but to get the evidence, they may need to do some experimentation where you can't do that experiment and tell people about it in advance. It simply can't be accomplished because it's a psychological study, not a medical study, for example. So that means debriefing becomes much more important. Uh, and and I don't think they effectively handled that in this instance. Uh, yeah, it's not just yeah, but it's also the fact that they use an algorithm to start with. Like that's what's... and that may and that itself is a policy choice, yeah, right? Right. And right. so, if they were to, you know, to tomorrow, they they might be making other policy choices about their algorithm, right? I don't know. Um, I would like those choices to be more evidence based rather than less evidence based, precisely to the extent that I think they are a pervasive and escapable utility. Yeah, but boy, boy, what a hard problem. I yeah yeah. I mean, it's just one last part. I mean, to the extent that we believe that exposure to friends, negative and positive words, negative and or positive words could have, you know, negative psychological repercussions for us. It's not clear to me that a chronological or reverse chronological order of posts is going to escape that problem. Right. So, you know, I mean, you, you mean a feeling I, bad or I'm, I'm sorry, I missed the first part of that. Like, well, t- t- yeah, if, if we believe any of this research that um, being exposed to your friends' positive words and or negative words has the potential to harm you psychologically, then having Facebook present to you all 1,500 average posts that you're eligible to see in chronological or reverse chronological order is not going to address those risks. I, I mean, it's not the case that this Facebook study you know, invented you know, newly happy or sad posts. It simply <laughs> reduced some that you are already eligible to see. I mean, by by friending people or accepting their friend request, you sort of implicitly consent to be exposed to whatever toxicity they may introduce into your Facebook feed. Or delight, to yeah. Your, right, or delight, right. Subject to your ability to mute or, or block or unfriend them. Um, and so, you know, to yeah, extent- but But what people don't necessarily consent to is or or they don't know they're consenting to is Facebook's manipulation for its purposes and hopefully yours right but but definitely for its purposes your exposure to the to that toxicity or joy or whatever right it's it, again it's like this in person wraith right look you like, did you consen- don't, okay. oh, this I, is I'm maddening over it. yeah you, you, i know you, i'm maddening you yeah. you did you did consent to the in in the following sense at least they didn't promise, nor did you extract a promise, that they would never, ever change anything about their service after you joined. So in that sense, you it's walk about in ongoing knowing expectation, they, though. It's not about like, no, but making you know, no any, one ever reads any making any though. change is itself something that affects the users and their experience. So 
and and frankly, even deciding to leave it the same is a choice that affects the user. What if experience. what if Facebook changed what was written by your friends without your knowledge? Okay, and, and they retain the right to do that. So your friend posts something. What about, if? Hey, I'm happy. All it's right. my birthday. It's yeah, great. What if? And then they replace it with something that says, "Oh my gosh, my, my uh, or or like uh, I'll say this. Yeah, like, I, I, like I, did you see in the pa- in Michelle's paper about her very bad day on Facebook? <laughs> I probably I probably wouldn't use a service that um randomly change the things other people wrote if you then, knew it was then doing again that. maybe if I, you knew it was doing that then again maybe i maybe i would use it because it might be funny it would be it certainly be better than what your actual friends say i think is what you're saying <laughs> i mean I, I think we all probably agree that you know it would be better for facebook to be more transparent about its product right or its service whatever you want to call it i think that um, Right. I, I think I think there's sort of violent agreement on that front. And and the question definitely violent. Yeah. And the, the questions are, are there certain policy choices, specifically the one to curate the newsfeed that are, you know, should have been off the table? And if not, you know, assuming the status quo where it does exist, what what's the ethics of testing that to see what its consequences are? But I mean, I think everyone can agree that there should be more transparency at least. Um, but I mean, you know, imagine that you got your way, Christian, and, and they just dumped a reverse chronological order posts. And yet there were these academic studies that said, well, Facebook use still correlates with these negative things or with these positive things. What would Facebook's obligation be at that point? Because I can imagine, I mean, if you think about, you know, a, a corporate product or service by analogy to the FDA, you think about sort of safety and efficacy, right? So one extreme possibility is before they roll anything out, they have to do a randomized controlled trial with small groups of people. Um, by the way, you don't escape, you know, the, the, the so-called guinea pig problem. I mean, somebody has to go first, right? But it's a utilitarian consideration. You, you do it in small, um, in small groups and you titrate the dose carefully and it's very monitored, but still somebody is being exposed to something new with un- unknown consequences, right? So you could do that. That strikes me as completely infeasible, right? We can't sort of have a, a phase one, two, three trial process for every innovation that we engage in, including new policies and practices and products and services. Um, and I don't know that ex ante, there was any reason for Facebook to suspect that it's you know, that newsfeed had the potential to produce these kinds of emotions. Maybe there was, I mean, I'm sure a psychologist probably would have predicted that. I'm, I'm, I doubt I would have, I'm not sure Facebook, you know, would or should have, um, you know, at the, at the other end of the extreme, there's the possibility of, well, they roll it out, whether it's the algorithm curatum or the, the algorithm curatum, the curated algorithm or Christian's preferred, you know, unfiltered experience. Either way, they start getting some probative but but non-definitive evidence from academics that these are causing problems. Um, they then have two choices. You can either try to test that and determine the truth of that, or you can shrug your shoulders and say, you know what? We got 1.4 billion users growing every day. So what? There are lots of popular media stories, but Facebook is making us sad. It doesn't seem to be hurting our bottom line. So if you think you're sad using Facebook, stop using it, right? I mean, that's, a, that's one plausible response that Facebook could have had is to just say, too bad. Um, we're, we're not going to spend time investigating this. Who cares? And, and the middle option is, of course, what, what they did. 
Mm-hmm. No, I, I do think it's it's totally fair, and I spend some time in the paper at the end doing this. You know, I, I view this as responsible innovation, right? I mean, so where it's not feasible or it doesn't make sense to do ex ante testing, you know, at some point midstream when you have some probative evidence that that something's awry, I think it, it's often more ethical to test and and to you know take responsibility for your own product and service. Like, wh- why that to me? is is what's responsible and ethical and treats your users like human beings. To just say, too bad, we're still making money. That, to me, does not treat people. That treats users as a mere means to your corporate ends. Um, but after you do that study, then there's a whole separate series of questions about, well, what did you learn and what are you doing with that knowledge, right? And here's where our conversation about Facebook's interest and user interests dovetailing or not kind of you know, comes into play in, in a stark way. Um, it, it could be that, uh, you know, Facebook learns something about its product that that suggests it's harmful, but it's too expensive to, to change or the advertisers wouldn't like it or whatever. It doesn't make sense for them. And so they don't change it and they don't tell anybody about it. You know, and that would be, I think, generally, you know, prima facie bad. And especially if you have, um, you know, conducted research where you have uh, exposed people to a modest increased risk by by modestly tweaking the dose of positive and negative words or whatever it is, you know, you ought to, in exchange, you know, as part of the debriefing, at least tell them what you learned. Um, and if you're not going to change it, the least you can do is say, well, here's what we learned. So if you find yourself experiencing these emotions, maybe you're the type of person who reacts this way and maybe you want to think, you know, whatever. Um, If you're not going to change the product, you can at least inform the consumer about it and let them make a more informed decision about their own use. All right. I think we're going to have to stop. But you know, you know what I love about this? So two things, two things, uh, Michelle. First, you know, Mark, if you're listening, um, none of this and none of my comments are to say that we, that, uh, oral argument cannot be acquired for a billion dollars. I think that's, it's just a given, right, Joe? Oh, we would entertain any serious, any offer. serious offer. Of so, course. Uh, to, if we want, we could join the Facebook family of companies. Only and, a fool would refuse and neither you nor I are a fool. Right. I think you mean is, is a fool. Correct. Yeah. Is a fool. Um, am. Neither hmm. you nor I. I'm a fool is a fool. <laughs> Who the f cares? Well, we are almost two hours into this, so it's too. That's why I can't yeah, speak? Yeah, yeah. yeah, this is. But um, it, let me just say this too, Mark. We will dramatically improve the quality of this podcast. <laughs> if we're uh, the second thing is, you know what I love, Michelle? You've been a listener and correspondent to the show since since the very early days of the show, and um, and 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 this is this is going to be a long one. Mm-hmm. But an inter- I think an extremely entertaining one. This At is really I good. Was entertained. Very uh, good. And so I love it. It's, you know, we, we, I think we've, they used to be longer, the shows. We've had and a trend lately of having them be a little bit shorter. And now almost like in recognition of Michelle's like veteran but, status. As a celebration, really. Yeah. It, we're <laughs> we're going to go back to the days of old and ship a, ship a long show. But I yeah. think it was definitely worth it. So, uh, Michelle, we, we, we will have you back on next time we want to fight about Facebook or anything else. Um, because th- this was really, fun and eye-opening especially uh you know we're gonna link up your pieces and 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 grimmelman's post and you've responded to that in your own faculty lounge blog but so there's so much to talk about here that's the that's what i find so wonderful is that this topic i mean 
what a what a an embarrassment of riches. Michelle's writing is beautiful. Mm-hmm. James Grimmel's Grimmelman's writing is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that they're disagreeing about some stuff is is fun and informative. Uh, this is just a, a treasure trove. <laughs> <laughs> seriously you, you were a great guest michelle so thank you so much uh, for thank joining you us. so much for having me it was a, a ton of fun and and this is clearly my platform in as much as i'm allowed to babble on for a long time so oh no yeah um, it's definitely <laughs> your platform and 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 and, and you know can't wait till next time my only regret yeah is that, is that you are not the third co-host we should just have Aww. we could just we've had a number of people who i think would be great co-hosts for us and, and other yeah. people who yeah. like that's not their bag but they they've right. been great guests right, right? Michelle, I, should be, I should be a substitute co-host uh, when one of you is you know whatever uh, from your lips yeah. to god's ear let me tell you i've been pushing yeah. for that for a year and a half and and i <laughs> joe has on numerous occasions said just do the show without me and i said that is not we that's not what we do we don't do that mm-hmm. and um but you know what we would do though i think just joe and michelle people, <laughs> That would triple or quadruple our listenership immediately. And people, we do not need an experiment for that, gosh darn no. it. If you, if you told people in advance, 100% less Christian on the show, I think no, du- doubling not, or tripling. Doubling or I know. Tripling. It, yeah, he's wrong that's about that. Well, so, well, so long as we had some Darcy. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Michelle. Uh, thanks, Michelle. Appreciate it. All right. It. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye.